Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Monday, February 26th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I am Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a podcast that is dedicated to prayer, devotion, Bible reading, and Bible study. Uh, the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. There's a lot of great listening over there, over 60 well-curated podcasts, wide, wide variety of topic areas, all covered from a biblical worldview. <clears throat> My brothers and sisters in Christ over there doing a wonderful, wonderful job for the kingdom. I would encourage you to go over there. Um, I will guarantee you, you're going to find something over there you want to listen to, and there's a real good chance you're going to find more over there to listen to than you actually have time to listen to it in. All right. Well, I want to thank you again. Um, those of you that have persevered and are here to listen still um, with me just out of the blue, taking another week out. Sorry about that again. A lot of stuff going on. Even more crazy stuff in this last week. Um, <laughs> I tease my wife that I want to wrap her in bubble wrap. And I really do sometimes, not that it would have mattered in this case. I mean, it was one thing when she fell down our stairs um, twice. Um, and one time she, she's got, she now has multiple stable fractures in her back that will never completely heal. Um, so, you know, I, I, that's not funny. It just, you know, it makes you, it makes me want to wrap her in bubble wrap. So that's the only, so she can't fall and hurt herself. You know, she'd be like a weeble that she would wobble around, but she really wouldn't fall down. Um, and of course I dated myself talking about weebles because most people nowadays don't know what a weeble is. Um, and, and it, which is funny because I actually look like a weeble nowadays. Um, didn't used to, but, but I sure do now. Um, but sure enough, during this week, I joke with my wife. I told her that she was pugnaciously walking across our den. Uh, really what I mean, I'm being silly about that. Basically she was walking across our den perfectly normally and something popped in her back. Um, I joke about the fact that we're getting old, that we can throw a hip out trying to get out of bed. Well, believe me, that kind of thing happens. So I, I, <clears throat> I don't know what's going on with her. I, we're making some guesses as to what it is. And we've, we've talked to folks that are either retired medical professionals or current medical professionals, and we're trying to do all the right things. And we know, honestly, me being almost 57 now and her being, well, I won't talk about her age that I, I've, I've been married long enough to know better than that, but you know, stuff happens, but we've learned certain ways to treat things. So anyways, so all that's done, but needless to say, it's been kind of a crazy week, but I did get things squared away to get started back up this week. So like I told you, we're going to be changing up our Bible reading plan. And I'm sorry, I know that may throw folks off if, if you were staying current and no offense, but I guarantee I, I'm pretty certain that most of you were not continuing to read on the plan that that the link was for out in my um, in my show notes to continue on whether I was on the air or not. And I understand that because I don't know that I would have either. So you know, understood. But so we're changing reading plans, and I should have done this at the beginning of the year. Um, I had thought about going to this reading plan, and I didn't. But what this is, this is a five day a week reading plan to read through the Bible in a year, as opposed to seven days, days a week. So going forward, I will only be broadcasting Monday through Friday. If I do a weekend episode, it may be a special episode, something like that. That's actually what I want to do is have some time to work in 
some special episodes, my wife and I discussing things from a biblical worldview, <clears throat> my pastor and I discussing them, some things from a biblical worldview. I really want to do that, have some guests on because I haven't done that yet. And I would love to do that and have really good discussion because I think that would benefit all of us. I know it would benefit me, but I think that would benefit all of us. So what we've done, like I said, is we've swapped up our Bible reading plan. Now, the prayers we're doing, um, even with the new stuff, the glorifying God from Thomas Watson, um, John MacArthur's approaching God or uh, at the throne of grace, his book of prayers, we're still going to be doing that. And we're still going to be doing our Bible study and we'll be continuing on in John chapter 18, right where we left off. But I just wanted to change up. So, so fact is buckle your seatbelt because we're going to be starting in a completely different place. We're starting from where we would be had we started this year in this five day a week plan. Okay. We're not starting it from the beginning. We're starting it from week nine, which is where we would be in that plan. Were we starting today? So, or, or were we, had we been doing this from the beginning? So we're in week nine of that plan. So we're going to, let's go ahead and let's get started. Let's go ahead and open up with the second day morning prayer from Valley of Vision. Uh, called God Overall. Let's pray. O God all-sufficient, thou hast made and uphold us all things by the word of thy power. Darkness is thy pavilion, thou walkest on the wings of the wind. All nations are nothing before thee. One generation succeeds another, and we hasten back to the dust. The heavens we behold will vanish away like the clouds that cover them. The earth we tread on will dissolve as a morning dream. But thou, unchangeable and incorruptible, art forever and ever, God over all, blessed eternally. Infinitely great and glorious art thou. We are thy offspring in thy care. Thy hands have made and fashioned us. Thou hast watched over us with more than parental love, more than maternal tenderness. Thou hast holden our soul in life, and not suffered our feet to be moved. Thy divine power has given us all things necessary for life and godliness. Let us bless thee at all times, and forget not how thou hast forgiven our iniquities, healed our diseases, redeemed our lives from destruction, crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies, satisfied our mouths with good things, renewed our youth like the eagles. May thy holy scriptures govern every part of our lives, and regulate the discharge of all our duties, so that we may adorn thy doctrine in all things. Amen. All right. In our morning devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for, uh, let's see, for February 26th, the text for it is from Jonah 2.9, Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is the work of God. It is he alone who quickens the soul, dead in trespasses and sins, and it is he also who maintains the soul in its spiritual life. He is both Alpha and Omega. Salvation is of the Lord. If I am prayerful, God makes me prayerful. If I have graces, they are God's gifts to me. If I hold on in a consistent life, it is because he upholds me with his hand. I do nothing whatever towards my own preservation, except what God himself first does in me. Whatever I have, all my goodness is of the Lord alone. Wherein I sin, that is my own, but wherein I act rightly, that is of God, wholly and completely. If I have repulsed a spiritual enemy, the Lord's strength, nerved my arm. Do I live before men a consecrated life? It is not I, but Christ who liveth in me. Am I sanctified? I did not cleanse myself. God's Holy Spirit sanctifies me. 
am I weaned from the world. I am weaned by God's chastisements, sanctified to my good. Do I grow in knowledge? The great instructor teaches me. All my jewels were fashioned by heavenly art. I find in God all that I want, but I find in myself nothing but sin and misery. He only is my rock and my salvation. Do I feed on the word? The word would be no food for me unless the Lord made it food for my soul, and help me to feel feed upon it. Do I live on the manna which comes down from heaven? What is that manna but Jesus Christ himself incarnate, whose body whose, and whose blood I eat and drink? Am I continually receiving fresh increase of strength? Where do I gather my might? My help cometh from heaven's hills. Without Jesus I can do nothing. As a branch cannot bring forth fruit except it abide in the vine, no more can I except I abide in him. What Jonah learned in the great deep, let me learn this morning in my closet. Salvation is of the Lord. All right. So like I said, new, re new reading plan. And by the way, I have added into the show notes a link on Amazon where you can find Glorifying God by Thomas Watson. Um, if you want to get a hard copy of that, I would encourage you to keep that in your library. Absolutely worth getting. Um, at the Throne of Grace by John MacArthur. I've got a link where you can get that over at Grace to You. Again, I would encourage that as well. It is wonderful, wonderful prayers. And then a link to this new reading plan, this five-day-a-week reading plan. I've added those links to our show notes. So if you if you want access to them beyond me just reading from them. But like I said, so new reading plan, so we're changing up what we're reading. So what we're going to be reading today is Leviticus 24-25, Psalm 81, and Hebrews 9. So Leviticus 24. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continuously. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before Yahweh continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on the pure gold lampstand before Yahweh continually. Then you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. And you shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before Yahweh. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to Yahweh. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before Yahweh continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings to Yahweh by fire, his portion forever. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the sons of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. And the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody, so that the command of Yahweh might be made clear to them. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who is cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. And you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the sojourner as well as the native when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. If a man strikes down the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death, and the one who strikes down the life of an animal shall make restitution for it, life for life. 
if a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who strikes down an animal shall make restitution for it, but the one who strikes down a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard of judgment for you. It shall be for the sojourner as well as the native, for I am Yahweh your God. Then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp, and stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Leviticus 25 Yahweh then spoke to Moses at sorry, at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I am giving to you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to Yahweh. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its produce. But during the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord from your harvest you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year, and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be for food, for you and your male and your female slaves, and your hired man and your foreign resident, those who sojourn with you. Even your cattle and the beasts that are in your land shall have all its produce to eat. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely forty-nine years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus set apart as holy the fiftieth year, and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own possession of land, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee, you shall not sow, you shall not reap. What grows of its own accord you shall not gather in from its untrimmed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce out of the field. On this year of jubilee each of you shall return to his own possession of land. If you make a sale, moreover, to your companion or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not mistreat one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your companion. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of produce, in proportion to the extent of the years you shall increase its price, and in proportion to the fewness of the years you shall diminish its price, for it is the number of crops it produces that he is selling to you. So you shall not mistreat one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am Yahweh your God. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments, so as to do them, that you may live securely on the land." Then the land will yield its fruit, so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say, What are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing for you in the sixth year, that it will bring forth the produce for three years. So you, so you shall sow the eighth year and eat old things from that produce, eating the old until the ninth year when its produce comes in. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but sojourners and foreign residents with me. Thus for every piece of land of your possession you shall provide for the redemption of the land. If a brother of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his possession of land, then his nearest kinsman redeemer is to come and redeem what his brother has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman redeemer but recovers his means and finds sufficient payment for its redemption, 
then he shall calculate the years since its sale and return the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return to his possession of land. But if he has not found sufficient means to return it to himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee it shall revert, that he may return to his possession of land. Likewise, if a man sells a house for habitation in a walled city, then his redemption right remains valid until a full year from its sale. His right of redemption lasts a full year. But if it is not redeemed for him within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city passes permanently to its purchaser throughout his generations. It does not revert in the Jubilee. The houses of the villages, however, which have no surrounding wall, shall be considered as open fields. They have redemption rights and revert in the Jubilee. As for cities of the Levites, the Levites have a permanent right of redemption for the houses of the cities which are their possession. What therefore belongs to the Levites may be redeemed. And a house sale in the city of their possession reverts in the Jubilee. For the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possessions among the sons of Israel. But pasture fields of their city shall not be sold, for that is their perpetual perpetual possession sorry now if a brother of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to your father and his means with regard to your father yeah then i'm sorry wow now if a brother of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter then you are to sustain him like a sojourner or a foreign resident that he may live with you do not take usurious interest from him, but fear your God, that your brother may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who give give you the I'm sorry, to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If a brother of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a foreign resident. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall return to his family, that he may return to the possession of the land of his fathers. For they are my slaves whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold in a slave sale. You shall not have dominion over him with brutality. But you shall fear your God, as for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the nations that are around you. And also you may acquire from the sons of the foreign residents who sojourn among you, from them and their families who are with you. As for those whom they have begotten in your land, they also may become your possession. You may even give them as an inheritance to your sons after you. To receive as a possession, you can use them as permanent slaves. But in respect to your brothers, the sons of Israel, you shall not have dominion over one another with brutality. Now if the means of a sojourner or of a foreign resident with you become sufficient, and a brother of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a sojourner who resides with you or to the descendants of a sojourner's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him, or if he prospers he may redeem himself. He then, with his purchaser, shall calculate from the year when he sold himself to him up to the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years. It is like the days of a hired man that he shall be with him. If there are still many years, he shall return part of his purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption. And if few years remain until the year of Jubilee, 
he shall so calculate with him. In proportion to his years he shall return the amount for his redemption. Like a man hired year by year, he shall be with him. He shall not have dominion over him with brutality in your sight. Even if he is not redeemed by these means, he shall still go out in the, in the year of Jubilee. He and his sons with him. For the sons of Israel are my slaves. They are my slaves whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. Psalm 81 For the choir director, according to the Getith of Asaph, Sing for joy to God our strength. Make a loud shout to the God of Jacob. Lift up a song of praise. Strike the tambourine, the sweet-sounding lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a judgment of the God of Jacob. He established it for a testimony in Joseph. When he went forth over the land of Egypt, I heard a language that I did not know. I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in distress, and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will testify against you. O Israel, if you would listen to me. Let there be no strange God among you, and you shall not worship a foreign God. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel was not willing to obey me. So I released them over to the stubbornness of their heart, that they would walk in their own devices. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies, and I would turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate Yahweh would cower before him, and their time of punishment would be forever. But I would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Finally, Hebrews 9. And I realize we've not been anywhere near Hebrews in our other plan, so I know this is new. But Hebrews 9. Now even the first covenant had requirements of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the first part in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, which is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which but budded, and the tablets of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the first part of the tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is indicating this, that the way into the holy places has not yet been manifested while that first part of the tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, requirements for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkle 
sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the trespasses that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commitment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry he sprinkled with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. All right, well, that is our reading for the day. I thank you for joining me, the, me joining me this morning. I thank you for persevering and hanging on until I, until I could get this stuff together. Um, and I, and I appreciate it. And I will do my best to continue on and not have any more of these weird breaks. I mean, you know, family stuff happens, you know, and I know, you know, this, cause I'm sure you're having, have that stuff happen in your lives as well. Um, fortunately, we're kind of looking forward to the joy here in a week in about a week. Not only are we going to be keeping my grandson, but we're going to be keeping my first granddaughter as well for a little while. So that is going to be wonderful as well, because she is so beautiful. So, so beautiful. But, and she definitely gets it from her mom, not from her dad. See, I got you, Christian. Anyways, um, Christian is my youngest son. That's what I was giving him a hard time. But anyways, thank you for coming. I hope you have yourself a wonderful day. I would continue to implore you to do all that you do for the glory of God. And I hope to see you for the evening segment. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer. The prayer we're going to close out with here is called Love to Jesus from Valley of Vision. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if I love thee, my soul shall seek thee. But can I seek thee unless my love to thee is kept alive to this end? Do I love thee because thou art good, and canst alone do me good? It is fitting thou shouldst not regard me, for I am vile and selfish, yet I seek thee. And when I find thee, there is no wrath to devour me, but only sweet love. Thou dost stand as a rock between the scorching sun and my soul, and I live under the cool lee side as one elect. When my mind acts without thee, it spins nothing but deceit and delusion. 
when my affections act without thee, nothing is seen but dead works. Oh, how I need thee to abide in me, for I have no natural eye to see thee. But I live by faith in one whose face, to me, is brighter than a thousand suns. When I see that all sin is in me, all shame belongs to me. Let me know that all good is in thee, all glory is thine. Keep me from the errors of thinking thou dost appear glo gloriously, when some strange light fills my heart, as if that were the glorious activity of grace. But let me see that the truest revelation of thyself is when thou dost eclipse all my personal glory, and all the honor, pleasure, and good of this world. The sun breaks out in glory when he shows himself as one who outshines all creation, makes men poor in spirit, and helps them to find their good in him. Grant that I may distrust myself to see my all in thee. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful day, and I hope to see you for the evening segment. Have a good one. God bless. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Monday, February 26th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host, and I know it's been a while you've gotten to hear it, that you've been able to hear from me. Very, very, again, as I said in the morning segment, very, very sorry needed to take that time, but I've got things squared back away. We're going to be jumping back into our study in John chapter 18. Um, we finished up the uh, the initial section there of John 18 verses 1 through 11. We dealt with that um, with Jesus' initial betrayal and everything. And now we're going to get into a section about Jesus' trial and Peter's denial. Um, and of course, this is an impromptu and completely illegal trial, um, not just because we know Jesus is perfect or anything, but the way they conduct it is, is not above board. Um, of course, it's not. <laughs> They're not going to conduct it. I mean... Please, we know that 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 their faith is false anyway, so they're not going to conduct it correctly. But we know that. But we'll, we'll get into that. But let's go ahead and open up as we had been doing this year. We're going to open up with prayers out of At the Throne of Grace by John MacArthur. It's a book of his prayers that his children put together. And like I've told you before, they open up with some text from the scriptures first. And I'm trying to, I'm sorry, I'm in a very dark room. So I'm trying to get this where I can actually read this. Ah, here we go. Okay, so the one we're doing today is approaching God when dismayed yet hopeful. And I realize I'm probably going to repeat some of these from the last couple of weeks when I was doing, but I wasn't sure where I was. And so <laughs> we're just going to do what we got to do. Um, but this is, this is going to be great regardless. So the text that leads in for this is Psalm 42 and 43. So, and I know we've done this one before, but hey, it's worth repeating. So here we go. Psalm 42 and 43. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with the source of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival." Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, 
from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me at the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, and hope the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. There I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Let's pray. Our Father, life in this sin-cursed world sometimes seems full of anguish, and we are too prone to fatigue and discouragement. Sometimes we can only groan inwardly, echoing the sigh of all creation in this fallen realm. We desperately need the help and comfort of your Holy Spirit to endure the ravages of sin amid the trials of daily life. Often we don't even know how to pray, but we but he makes intercession for us with groanings of his own that are too deep for human words, and his prayers, unlike our feeble efforts to express the agony of our hearts, are always in accord with your perfect will. As your children, we thirst for you and trust in your deep down. I'm sorry, and trust in you deep down. We long to, to sense your presence. We need your tender mercy. We crave your heavenly comfort. We stand in awe of your wisdom, your faithfulness, and your perfect timing. Our experience confirms the testimony of your word. You have never forsaken us. Thus, with settled confidence, we echo the bold expectancy of the psalmist. We shall yet praise you. Bearing in mind those precious truths, we approach your throne once again, with both fearful trembling and holy boldness. You are both glorious and merciful, almighty and full of compassion, a righteous judge, but extravagant with tender mercies. We ask your blessed, sorry, we, we seek your blessed favor in our times of need, although we know we are unworthy because you have summoned us to come confidently to the throne of grace. We are vile, fallen creatures, and your glory is above the heavens. We are guilty, but you are gracious. We are weak, but you are strong. We are needy, but you are rich in loving kindness. We are defiled by sin, but you are spotlessly holy. We are without merit, but you cover us with your own perfect righteousness. Most gladly, therefore, do we boast about our weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in us. Help us to be content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and with difficulties for Christ's sake, because when we are weak, then we are strong. By faith we have been made dead to sin, and alive in your holy presence. You have blessed us with love, the likes of which we have never before known, love for you and love for one another. You have showered us with grace and glory. No good thing have you withheld. 
You have brought us into the fellowship of the church, and you have supplied us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Use us in advance, I'm sorry, use us to advance your kingdom and be, bring honor to your name. Cleanse us from everything that would hinder us in accomplishing your will, and receive our earnest prayer at prayers and worship in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. And I'm sorry, I know those can be long, but oh, they are so, so rich in theology. His prayers are so rich in theology. All right. And our devotion for today, our evening devotion, is going to be, again, from Glorifying God by Thomas Watson. Uh, it's a collection of devotions. And sorry, I have a dog here that's complaining. What? Hold on a minute. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to put you on pause here for a second. All right. All right. Sorry about that. My little 14-pound dog felt like he had to go tell everybody that he was the boss in the neighborhood. So hang on a minute. I need a drink. Oh, man. How crazy is that? All right. So again, our devotion is the February 26th entry from Thomas Watson's uh, Glorifying God. Let's see. The text is from Proverbs 16, verse 20. He who gives attention to the word with, will feel, I'm sorry. He who gives attention to the word will find good and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Wow. I wish they'd write those. <laughs> I've told you before about this book. It's not a white page, so there's not as sharp a contrast and they write those words very small and they do in italics. So it makes it harder to read, especially in a darker room. Um, let's see in the title for today is glorifying God by blessing. I'm sorry. Glorifying God by beholding God's glory in scripture. Okay, there we go. So here we go. There is divinity in scripture. It contains the marrow and quintessence of religion. It is a rock of diamonds, a mystery of piety. The, the lips of scripture have grace poured on into them. The scripture speaks of faith, self-denial, and all the graces which, as a chain of pearls, adorn a Christian. The scripture leads to holiness. It tells of another world. It gives a prospect of eternity. Search the scripture. Make the word familiar to you. Had I the tongue of angels, I could not sufficiently set forth the excellence of scripture. It is a spiritual reflection in which we behold God's glory. It is the tree of life, the oracle of wisdom, the rule of manners, the heavenly seed of which the new creature is formed. The leaves of the tree of life were for healing. So these holy leaves of Scripture are for the healing of our souls. Scripture is profitable, profitable for all things. If we are deserted, here is spiced wine that cheers the heavy heart. If we are pursued by Satan, here is the sword of the Spirit to res resist him. If we are diseased with sin's leprosy, here are the waters of the sanctuary both to cleanse and to cure. There is no danger in plucking from this tree of holy Scripture. If we do not eat of this of this tree of knowledge, we shall surely die. Oh, then read the scriptures. I would definitely agree with that. Um, we definitely in our day, many, many, many of us that are professing Christians or claim to be Christians. Again, that's what I'm saying. When I say professing doesn't mean we actually are, but professing Christians, um, I'm not so sure we are. Um, we definitely don't spend enough time in the word. We don't show the love of God that we claim to have. All right, well, like I said, we're going to be jumping back into our study of John chapter 18. So we finished our first 11 chapter, our first 11 verses of John 18, uh, which we called Jesus' betrayal and arrest. Actually, 
Dr. MacArthur called them that. And we looked at Christ. We looked at these, uh, what was it? One, two, three, four attributes that are four supreme things that Christ manifested during that point. We saw his courage. We saw his power. We saw his love and we saw his obedience. So again, the crux of it is that he allowed this to happen when he could have resisted it to be obedient to God. He manifested his supreme power in knocking them, knocking them to the floor. Again, 200 trained legionnaires plus a number of trained temple officers. He knocked to the ground, speaking the name of God and speaking it in reference to himself. But then he showed his supreme love and that he protected his disciples said, you're here for me, leave these alone. But then he showed his courage that he went right to it. Again, I've talked about that before. He went to the garden of Gethsemane on purpose. He knew that Judas knew that he would go there and he went there anyways. I mean, he, he didn't sit there and th this was not some comical plan to try to hide, you know, in plain sight or something like that. He knew they were going to come arrest him and he meant to be there so they could. That, that was the whole thing. So what we're getting into today, and, and I've got notes for today, but I my notes for today are extremely long. So we may, I may actually have to stop and I may have to carry them on into tomorrow. Um, and the same is true of tomorrow no, tomorrow's notes. The, <laughs> those may have to carry into Wednesday. I've got planned to complete all these and then we'll move on into a next section. Um, I think we hit uh, John 1828. Uh, I think it's, or is it, yeah, 28 through 32 for Friday. We may not make that because we've got an awful lot of information we need to cover. And I really want to cover this more. I mean, I, I do have a purpose behind this, but I want us to really take into this really like a Bible study. We need to understand the whole context of this, of what's really happening here. So let's do that. So what I'm going to do, so this is a section about Jesus's trial and Peter's denial. And this is going to be verse 12 through 27. So I'm going to read all of it. So John 18 verses 12 through 27. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the people. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, are you not also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby gave Jesus a slap, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? 
He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. So you see very clearly, this is Jesus' uh, Jesus' trial before the priests and Peter Peter's denial here. So what we're going to deal with today is just verses 12 through 14, and we're going to deal with what we can of it. Again, there's a lot to unpack here, so we may have to we may have to carry over some into tomorrow. And, and I'm sorry, but I just there's just too much, and I don't want to shortchange you. I want you to understand this. So the verses we're going to try to deal with today are verses 12 through 14. So let me read them again. Since this was so long, I want, I want us to have these verses in our heads. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the people. So we're just going to unpack this one verse at a time, which is what I try to do anyways. So let's look at, look at verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So we've spoken of before that a Roman co cohort was typically 800 to 1,000 men. Now, the fact is, if, if you actually look at the history of this, typically in, in Israel, there was a cohort as a whole that was the detachment that was assigned to Israel as a whole. And typically, and I, I honestly, I didn't do the research. I realized I didn't do it when we started into this um, for today. Um, we noticed that, that, that Paul, when Paul gets arrested and they, they go to take him to the governor, that the governor's normal place is not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not the city where um, the Roman governor would actually stay. His headquarters were somewhere else. And typically that's where the cohort was. And I don't remember what the city was. I think it was Caesarea Philippi, but I, I'm probably wrong with that. So please don't hold me to that. Um, I'm just, but it was somewhere else. So what this was, this was a, det a detachment of soldiers from the cohort. Um, and again, we, we, we talked about it in all probability. It was what was called a maniple. It was 200 members. And please understand within a legion, there was a mix of troops. The bulk were the typical legionnaire. The ones when we think of Roman soldiers, we see with the big shield and the sword and the spear and the helmet. And they're, they're the ones in the greaves and all that. And the ones that they form into their phalanxes to fight and stuff like that. So the majority of them are that. But in a lot of cases, they would also... Um, within the cohort, parts of them, parts of the cohort would also be um, maybe some horsemen of a particular type. Um, sometimes it might be horsemen uh, that are actually Roman horsemen of a particular type, or it might be horsemen of the local area trained in specific types of fighting. Because in a lot of cases, some of these local areas that Rome would take over, they would contribute troops that would be kind of part of their leaving them alone. We got to remember that, that Rome was pretty good. Yeah. Rome would oppress, but Rome was very, very good about bringing in what seemed to be working in these areas and taking the best from them. They were very, very good at that. But again, so this was probably the maniple, the 200 members. So 200. So a cohort was typically 800 to a thousand men. So this is anywhere from a quarter to a fifth 
of the total complement of the Roman cohort that was here. And again, they would have been assigned here because, again, we've talked about the fact that um, typically we would end up need that, that there was there was documentation that in the first century during the Passover, Jerusalem would swell in some cases to over a million people there. So this maniple would be deployed to Jerusalem to help to enforce law. Because again, we've spoken many a time that the Passover tended to be very nationalistic. And so the Jews tended to really get their dander up. They really got wound up about being under Roman rule. Win more, you know, win more for them to get wound up. And again, they'd already proclaimed Jesus as the king of Israel during his triumphal entry back in John 12. So John 12, 12 through 16. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. So again, even the, so, you know, we, we see there in John, John is sitting there quoting, um, that that text that prophecy fear not daughter of zion behold your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt john wouldn't be the only one who knew that prophecy these people would have known that prophecy so they're proclaiming him their king and that was the typical thing with the palm branches and we've we've seen it and we've done it i mean i did it growing up oh you had to celebrate palm sunday with the palm branches but th but that was a typical greeting for the king you'd lay some in the road to cushion the feet of of the of the king's steed, whatever it happened to be. Usually it was not a colt, but this from the prophecy. But in some cases, they, they would be waving the palm fronds over his head to keep the sun off of the king coming in. So the Romans and the Sanhedrin, they, they had really not, and I've said this before, they had really not planned on apprehending Jesus during the Passover for fear that the, that the Jews would riot, that they would go nuts. Thus, why there was typically a detachment of Roman soldiers, like I said, sent to Jerusalem on each Passover. And remember, we, we talked about the, oh, so I already said this about this, that the, um, the population of Ju Jerusalem, again, could swell to around 1 million people. So think about that. What, what would that be like if even a quarter of that million people rioted? If 250,000 of those people rioted? And you've got a Roman co you've got even, even the whole Roman co cohort, a thousand men, even though properly trained, you could overwhelm with them with numbers. If you know anything about, mil about, about military tactics and strategy and whatever, 250,000 versus a thousand. I mean, yeah, eventually Rome would, would manifest multiple legions because a cohort is a small part of a legion. Um, you could manifest multiple legions come in and just lay flat Jerusalem, which is what ends up happening in 70 AD. But again, they were terrified of this, of, of what could happen because of the nationalistic fervor already. And here's the guy they're proclaiming King, not so much because they really, I mean, they know some of the prophecies and stuff, but it's the fact this guy is going around again. Remember 
he's basically removed all disease. He's improved everybody's health a hundredfold instantly in this area. Um, he's produced food. He's produced food for free, which again, I've talked to you about it that, you know, you and I missing a meal, not a big deal, but in the, this case, these people getting a free meal was a huge financial benefit to them because of how close they lived to starvation. But again, they were terrified of what this would, would happen. Uh, Mark 14 verses one through two. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how after seizing him in secret, they might kill him for they were saying not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. And while he was in, oh, and this went on and while he was in Bethany at, and of course I lost that. So anyway, but anyways, so needless to say, they were afraid of the riot. I mean, the scripture makes very, very clear. That's why they're struggling with this. And of course, along with those 200, there were the Levite temple officers. And I've talked about that, that, you know, that these were guys who were theologically trained, but were also t trained basically as police officers. They were trained as police officers. And from, um, Mark, no, it's not Mark. And from Luke, we see that not only are there, um, temple officers, temple enforcers, but there are their officers or supervisors as well. Luke twenty two fifty two. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? So again, even their supervisors have come to arrest him. And then we see them arrest Jesus. We see this. And uh, let's see. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Note that they bound him as we see with law enforcement today. And, and my wife and I watch a lot of law enforcement shows, um, more of the, <coughs> more of the live TV kind of stuff. Not, not the, not as much of the, the fictional stuff, but even law enforcement today, sometimes, even when they're just detaining somebody to investigate what's going on, even if they're not necessarily arresting them, they have a tendency to cuff them. So th this may have been a normal practice that, listen, we're, we're apprehending this guy. We need to go ahead and bind him for our, because uh, a lot of times you, you hear that from the officers. I'm putting you in cuffs for your safety and mine. So that, so that you don't think it's a good idea to do something stupid and put yourself at risk. And so that you don't do something that puts me at risk so I can go home to my family. You know, and I've heard officers say that. I've heard officers I know say that kind of stuff. So again, this may have been a normal thing, but one theologian that I was, that I came across while I was studying this one theologian I came across talks about this. Think about Isaac, that, that, that there's a bigger significance to the binding. Think about Isaac, Genesis 22, nine. Then they came to the place of which God had told him and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son, Isaac, and put him on the altar on top of the wood. Isaac's the sacrifice. He's been bound. And then think of the old Testament sacrifices. Psalm 118 verse 27, Yahweh is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Again, in that case, I, the, 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 the sacrifice, particularly if they were being sacrificed fresh right there, they would be bound to the altar and then their throat cut and then 
drained and all that kind of stuff. But again, they would be bound. The sacrifice would be bound. Well, Christ is that final sacrifice. He is that final sacrifice of the Mosaic covenant. And he's being bound. He's being bound by the sinful. He's being bound as he goes to be sacrificed. So that's what we're seeing here in this arrest. And wow. Um, you know what? I'm not even going to go into the next verse. I, I'm sorry. I was going to, um, but I don't want to get partway through verse 13 because there's so much we want to see about Annas and Caiaphas and to discuss verses 13 and 14 that I'm just not going to try to grind through that. Um, because the morning segment with, with my inner and everything was already a good, this is already going to be about an hour long program. So I'm sure that's probably enough for you. So thank you for spending this time with me. I continue to pray that our time together here in the word, um, helps us all to grow in our understanding of the scripture so that we truly walk more and more like imitators of God. And we will come back tomorrow and we'll dig back into God willing into verses 13 and 14 here. And we may move over into the, the next segment, which is then going to be about, um, the, the initial part, um, cause I didn't get a chance to talk to you. I'm going to talk. So there's a religious part to Jesus trial and there's a civil part to Jesus trial. And then there, and, and there are multiple parts. There are multiple acts of it. And that's how Dr. MacArthur breaks it up. And I think it's great, but there are multiple acts to Peter's denial as well. And we'll see that and we'll break into that. But I hope you have yourself a wonderful evening. Let's go ahead and close, close out with prayer. We're going to close out with the second day evening prayer. It's called bounty. Let's pray. Thou great and only potentate, thou hast made summer and winter, day and night. Each of these revolutions serves our welfare and is full of thy care and kindness. Thy bounty is seen in the relations that train us, the laws that defend us, the homes that shelter us, the food that builds us, the raiment that comforts us, the continuance of our health, members, senses, understanding, memory, affection, will. But as stars fade before the rising sun, thou hast eclipsed all these benefits in the wisdom and grace that purposed redemption by Jesus thy Son. Blessed be thy mercy that laid help on one that is mighty and willing, one that is able to save to the uttermost. Make us deeply sensible of our need of his saving grace, of the blood that cleanses, of the rest he has promised, and impute to us that righteousness which justifies the guilty, gives them a title to eternal life and possession of the Spirit. May we love the freeness of salvation and joy in its holiness. Give us faith to grasp thy promises that are our hope. Provide for every exigency and prevent every evil. Keep our hearts from straying after forbidden pleasures. May thy will bind all our wishes. Let us live out of the world as to its spirit, maxim, manners, but live in it as the sphere of our action and usefulness. May we be alive to every call of duty accepting without question thy determination of our circumstances and our service. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful evening, and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Have a good night. God bless.